Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 11 from Clown of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. William Dorrance, also known as Bill Dorrance, was Tom Dorrance's older brother. Bill was a soft-spoken horseman, known and loved as a mentor by many mentors in the horse industry today. Whether you were learning to rope, ride, train horses, or starting to braid rawhide, Bill was the tireless teacher of beginners and the horse's faithful friend all of his life. And when he passed away two decades ago, at the age of 93, he was still riding horses according to the values and practice of the vaquero traditions. During his life, Bill offered today's guest Leslie Desmond guidance during a four-year apprenticeship while she recorded his knowledge and experiences for posterity. Between 1995 and 1999, they trained horses together, put on demos together, and held clinics together, while Leslie co-wrote the book True Horsemanship Through Feel. After Bill passed away, Leslie continued to work exclusively with trainers and horse owners who want to advance their handling, riding, and training skills in a classical way Bill Dorrance handled and trained his own horses for ranch work, competition, and any job there was a need for them to do. Leslie is also one of the founders of the Bill Dorrance Legacy Project and the webpage feelofahorse.com. I'll set today's interview off with a quote from Leslie's own webpage. My dream is that horse enthusiasts and trainers from all disciplines will consider and take on board the finer points of feel and release as they continue down life's winding road, hopefully in the company of a good horse. My God. <laughs> hey. There you are. We managed. Yeah, we managed. Hi. It's been quite a while. I don't even know how many years, but many. My guess is 2007. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. But yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a big that's a good stretch. That's a good stretch. Well, it's a good stretch and Probably uh, probably good time to get back together now. I'm thrilled. Thank you for uh, extending the invitation that you did. I've, I've been very, very touched and very inspired to, to reunite in a, where we are now. This is great. It's great for me as well. Like I said to you um, initially on the messenger that um, you have really been such a huge inspiration in my horse life. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I listen. I am inspired by you as well, and always have been. I'm still inspired by everyone I meet that loves a horse. You know, it it just the the love of the horse is something that all of us share worldwide, and it doesn't matter whether somebody's a student or a trainer or a farrier or anybody. I mean, if you're working with horses, it's pretty it's pretty exciting to see what people do and to see how the horses affect them. You know. I mean, the reason why I'm contacting you, Leslie, is that, um, like I said, when we spoke initially, you you have really made a significant impact on my, my horse work and the way I rela- relate to horses, basically. You've been really a very important teacher for me, and um, this, it was the start of an interesting journey with horses to, to join your clinics uh, way back when. 
So uh, to have this opportunity to talk to you again, see where you're at now, and um, and also maybe have you share some of your insight with my listeners, I think it's very, very valuable. Thank you so much for all your comments. Um, I think often and fondly of those years, you know, we it was another time in history in a way, wasn't it? It was. It was. That's very true. It was really another time. It had many... It, it just was... Uh, well, I don't know how to really qualify it without thinking further, but all I know is that it, it those are those times are not now, that's for sure. And uh, so I'm glad to reconnect as you are and uh, for all the same reasons, because I do think that the students who I have attracted are also the teachers I needed. I, I think it's so wonderful that somebody with your experience always consider yourself also a student because uh, every day every yeah. day it's every it's day. not so common with the guys i mean some of them are just insisting on being masters and saying that they have no teachers and maybe all their teachers are dead um, like 200 years ago but but it's you need to be humble when you deal with horses i think you need always to be well, open and flexible in mind like like you are i think it's very very important well i'll say one thing uh, I don't believe it's any coach's or trainer's job to call themselves a master. I think that is something that is uh, only appropriately assigned from external sources. You know, a legacy and a mastership is something that is not self-appointed with any credibility. And in the end, the only judge that matters is the horse. So the people that I am listening to and paying attention to are the people with the questions because the people with the questions are the people that lead me to my questions because very often the questions of the people who I know, and I won't even qualify anybody as a student because it doesn't matter. That part doesn't matter. What matters is, is there a question? And if there's a question, it means that the answer comes usually from further questions. Uh, when, pe when people ask me a question, there's not a possibility for me to answer without asking further questions. Because if you take any question that anybody could have, my reply could only be predicated on the understanding, having usually, in most cases, not seen the horse if I'm getting a, a question or it's not happening right in front of me. I can only ask for more information. And that could include many different considerations count almost infinite considerations but of course we wouldn't say infinite because then the conversation would never be over but you would want to know something about the use of the horse a previous condition did something occur that created a change is the horse how is the horse kept is the horse sound to start with does the tack fit is the handler or trainer afraid of the animal these all, these all have a bearing on any question that comes to me. And, uh, you know, I just got back from a nine-week trip, and I had 11 courses on my way. I went out to see my father because he's 92. He's the one who first got me started on all this, after all. And um, I didn't want to go in an airplane, so I, I drove out there. And then it became clear that there were some people to see along the way, so I stopped at various places out and back. And... I can tell you that out of the 49 horses I saw, uh, less than three were actually, I would say, uh, categorically sound physically and mentally. And they were 
young. The rest of the horses had one or more things that were quite apparently not okay. And many of them were just, to be honest with you, four-legged lame. And no one knows the difference because people are no longer interested in learning how to read a horse. And in one way, I like that because they're interested in having fun. And for so long a period of time, people were interested in mastering the horse or dominating or being good or working for the astonishment of others and not really having fun. But now things seem to have changed a bit and sort of the competition aspect of horse owning, like who's better than who or who's in what club or who's been seen, you know, who do you see and who are you seen with and all this sort of thing seems to be a little bit less important than it was 15, 20 years ago. And now it's more a question of, hey, can we go out and have a good time with our horse that we don't know really anything about? And can we just gas around and, you know, how, it, how fun will it be? And I actually really am very supportive of that because I think it was for a number of years not enough of an emphasis on horse owning and horse involvement. Is it fun? I think when people are really out to have a good time with their horses, the horses are kind of freed up in one way, there's less pressure on them to perform in some odd, um, perhaps arbitrary way, arbitrary momentary request for some sort of, I don't know, change or performance or submission or just some sort of whim, that a whim or a just a, a, a casual change of perspective or performance that someone might want. Um, I think when people are just going to have fun and ride with each other and enjoy their animal, I mean, I think this is really what's the other thing is that the demographics have changed. I mean, the people who were uh, 20 and 25 years ago, uh, they are now older. They still have an interest in horses. And as it turns out, they are the ones who seem to be able to afford it, not only in terms of the time but in terms of the cost and so we have sort of an older generation of people an older clientele an older population of horse lovers and owners who have kind of been through some hard times of trying to make it as trainers or try to achieve a certain satisfaction with an amateur performance status or a fake it till you make it hope for the best and realize that you're really not cut out for it sort of an experience i mean I've seen I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of people in a lot of different um, postures uh, in the horse community, and it is certainly different from country to country, and it is different in terms of the military history of the countries that horses are still enjoyed in. But you know, overall, what's not to love about a horse? I could say that in a general way, and suddenly there'll be 25 hands out of 30 that will go up with minor complaints that are really based on just a lack of knowledge of the animal. You know, if you say, what's not to love about a horse? Many people who do love their horses will shoot their hands up and say, yes, but. And what comes up is, you know, just odd things like he won't go forward, which produces a whole line of questioning from me under what circumstances. And it often turns out that the horse's equipment doesn't fit or he ha is 
got such hoof care that he is landing toe first instead of heel first, which is a very, very unfortunately common problem. And this level of awareness about the horse's need to land heel first, just as we do, um, you know, is a real eye opener for people. And it starts many of them on a quest and a journey to try to find either better care or learn to trim and shoe themselves. And there are, you know, I don't think there's ever been a time in history where more people who own horses knew less about them. Yeah. It's strange, isn't it? Uh, in one way, yes. In one way, yes. But in another way, you have to think about what sort of information is available. And the kind of information that's available is not always comprehensive. It's, you know, often sort of limited or unprofessionally provided, meaning unprofessionally, meaning with good intent and heart, but not a lot of substance, not a lot of factual and verifiable uh, resources to back up a certain statement. And a lot of this, I think, is generated by the need for people to feel as though what they know is enough to recommend to others, you know, and I don't think there's any shortage of armchair trainers out there who are probably better off riding a bar stool, safer riding a bar stool than a horse, but full of observation and years of reading and video watching that qualifies them to help people starting out. And, you know, much of it is, some of it's useful, much of it isn't, but for the person starting in horses, it's very hard to know uh, who to listen to. This, yeah, this is something I see quite a bit of in Norway as well. That that people with quite limited experience and um, think that they have all the answers. Maybe they've been with horses for, you know, between two and and ten years, something like that, and and they feel like experts. And I'm thinking that's interesting because many of the people that I learn from, they've been with horses for maybe 40 or 50 years and they, they still feel like they're at the starting point. So so people look at knowledge very differently. It's it's the case. And I'll tell you, Buck Brenneman put it as no one had that I've heard before or since. And he would often say some people just haven't been heard enough to think before they speak. And you think about that. Some people haven't been hurt enough to think before they open their mouth. And um, the, the fact is that horses are enjoyable and dynamic and inspiring and beautiful and comforting, but not used today as they once were for military purposes, for transportation, uh, to ensure the viability of commerce you know, whether it's bringing the logs out of the woods or the hay in from the field or the rocks out of the field so you can even grow hay to begin with, or, you know, the produce from town or the ice from the lakes or the bride and groom to the church or whatever it is, or the, or the older people as they pass on to the cemetery. All of this was horse-drawn. These were horse-drawn operations. To say nothing of the fact that it was not uncommon, I mean, Think of the numbers in the 19th century, okay? In 1815, 1815 does not seem that long ago on a timeline to me. Maybe for some people it's inconceivable. It depends on who you're talking to. But in 1815, Napoleon 
surrendered at Leipzig, unless I'm mistaken, or sometime around in there. That man himself, if history is correct and if the things, are, if the sources I've been aware of are, are accurate, that man was responsible for the death of two million horses. Now, I mean, I, I, I'm, I cannot say that that's an accurate fact. I'd have to go back and check. But when you start thinking just about the numbers of that many mounted horses or that many horses in front of vehicles that are, you know, moving provisions around Europe, and you think about where we are right now in our Star Wars-like existence with people getting ready to suit up and, and go to Mars. I mean, good Lord, uh, that's a whole lot different than putting a harness on a horse. And just in terms of, you know, the development of America, I mean, when, when people think about, you know, rodeos and bucking horses and starting colts and a Bermuda or your California Vaquero uh, fascination and passion that many people have and, you know, riding in the two rein or riding straight up in the bridle and these things that are discussed and practiced and sought after. I mean, this is all well and good. But most people don't take care of their thrush and their horses. Most people are riding horses with rotten feet. And I'm, I'm saying most. I pick up the feet and look at the feet of every horse that comes to every class I have. At one point or another, I'm looking at the feet because the horses aren't sound. And most of them don't get their hooves picked out every day. And they are owned by people who love them and who would spare nothing to do right by them. But what's right by them is you need to look in those feet every single day and keep them clean and thrush free. Rotten feet infect the blood supply. You know, you, I, it's all I can say. And there's no other way to, to really consider what happens when a, an infected frog becomes so deeply uh, involved in the systemic problems that a horse has that he has to walk on his toe because his heels are too sore. And I mean, this, this is so basic. This is so basic. So when you talk about four-legged lameness, what would you say is the uh, common cause of that lameness with the horses that you see, with the feet that you pick up? Well, it, it has. there are about five causes, and, and the degree to which each is operative in the life of these horses, it would only be a matter of inquiry, and I would need to you know, be more specific on a case-by-case -case basis. But I can just say generally... It's over-confinement, incorrect diet, uh, improper hoof care, and they are either trained or ridden in a way that pushes them onto the forehand, which causes them to, because, it, you know, when a rider is looking down at their hands or down at the ground or down at the horse's head, their body tips forward, their hips tip back, and their feet, which are on a moving platform called a stirrup, tip forward. So the rider basically kind of folds in half a little bit and that causes you to lose your balance when you're looking up your weight can shift down to the center of gravity in a proper way that your weight is carried on the rib cage by the back of your leg which will bring your foot underneath you and when your foot is underneath you then the horse can move his forehand and when your foot is out in front and you're leaning forward looking down you not only lose your balance but when you make a turn you're blocking the line of sight of the horse you're, br you're bringing him into your core energy and your line of sight which is blocking the shoulder you're asking to have light. 
and people aren't aware of these things. So after all, the horses are kind of pushed onto the forehand or they have bad hoof care, a diet that has either not enough minerals, too much sugar, um, it, you know, a twice daily feeding is not an adequate way to get a horse, um, you know, put through a day. And people don't, people aren't aware of this. I mean, you know, if you only fed a cow twice a day, uh, I don't think you'd have the kind of um, meat, cheese, dairy, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't, have the, you wouldn't have the commerce that you do in the cattle industry if they only ate twice a day. But since we're not eating horses and drinking their milk, then we don't really think about what it is that they need because in that way because we're not really regarding them the way that we would sheep or goats and we need to think of a horse's livestock so um i would also like to talk to you leslie about um horse training and the most common mistakes and misunderstandings about how horses operate because one thing is you know the the feeding the hoof care the the tack we put on and the way we um and the way we keep our horses but I'm also interesting, interested in your perspective on how to train them. Well, let me think about that for a minute. Um, I suppose it would depend on whether you're talking about someone who is going to continue training that has been started or whether somebody is going to go out and get a Mustang from the Bureau of Land Management in the States or take a colt from one of these breeding farms, you know, whether it's a Andalusian or a Lusitano or, you know, one of the warm blood German breeds, or are you going to be talking about the cold bloods and the racing? I mean, those types of things sort of would, depending on what you're talking about, it would maybe affect some of what I would say. Um, I would uh, focus on the ethology of the horse, uh, the way horses operate. So, um, you know, when people say the horse is lazy, the horse is stupid, um, the horse is uh, too clever for his own good. Uh, you know, all these words that we use to describe horses uh, that really, in my book, sort of uh, give away the fact that we don't really understand them. Yeah, I was going to say comments like that say a lot more about the people than making the statement than it does about the horse. Um, yeah, those kinds of uh, statements don't come from people who have learned how to read a horse or respect one either. But in order to learn how to respect a horse, you have to be around people who respect them. And those people seem to be hard to find. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't know what to say about that. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's true, but I think that the people seeking influence, I mean, seeking, well, seeking influence in their learning so the people who are seeking influence from a coach or a mentor, they may not know how to understand whether a person respects a horse or not. I mean, I, I think that when you're starting out and even when you're in the middle of the process, you don't know what you don't know until you suddenly see that there's a whole other way of looking at things or a whole piece of the possibility of for education that you may have missed. I, I'm, I'm not sure that it's, I, I think it takes time. And that's what many people don't think they have enough of. And so those people shouldn't get involved with horses actually anyhow. 
because to do a good job with horses. And and I mean, and when I say do a good job with horses, I mean if your presence doesn't flatter the horse, if your presence doesn't improve the way a horse can feel or be or experience himself or experience your request, then probably there's quite a bit to learn about what to do better. Do you know what I mean? Um, I used to see that people would um, disturb a horse intently or intensely because of their unconscious intent often, but also intensely disturb the horse and then sort of garner some sort of credit for calming the beast, you know, like stir him up, get him to overreact and misbehave and then somehow dominate this amazing thing that you just created without somehow letting on that you were responsible for the problem or for the discord or the discontent in the animal and then tame him down and strut around a little the achievement I, I don't know what it is about this part of human nature. I think it would be harder to do that with an elephant or a tiger or a bear. Don't think that the same type of bravado, do you know what I mean? Bravado, the same type of, um, I don't know, grandstanding or something. I don't, I, I don't know enough about bear trainers and wolf trainers and lion trainers to know. But, I mean, those... You have to have respect for those animals because they're predators and they're going to they're going to let you have it right now if you're not on the job in the right way. I mean, I've seen very touch. I've seen extremely touching um, vignettes, uh, stories uh, written and videographed and audio recorded episodes of people who've had experiences with all these predatory animals. But when you're dealing with a flight animal, I mean. It's a no-brainer that you can chase a horse around in a circle and make him run and then block him and make him look at you and say, look what I did. I mean, <laughs> the horse is only trying to survive. You don't have that situation quite as acutely and quite as demonstrably with a predator. And, a, and it's also the same with mules. I mean, you know, I, one of the things that I remember very distinctly Ray Hunt saying on a couple of occasions when he was asked about mules and whether he handled mules and how he felt about mules and what was the difference between a horse and a mule. And he would, um, without reservation, say a, a, a mule is like a horse, only more so. He's got a different kind of memory because he's he's a human creation and um, a different. He's got a different a different way of operating and. And I, I do know that a horse and, and, and a horse, while he is still operating as a horse, they do not seem to hold a grudge. We've seen them hold a grudge until there's so much horse taken out of the horse that they are operating more like humans and predators that they are created and turned into. But if you leave the horse in the horse, which many people don't even know what that means, this is still under your the banner of training that you asked me to address here. But you see, here's the way I look at it. If you're going to dominate a flight animal as opposed to work with him, not work on him, but with him, then for yes to have meaning, no has to be okay. And if you're not willing 
in your approach for no to have a legitimate place in the discussion, then don't fool yourself about whether you are working with the horse. You are working on him. You are working not for him and with him, but you're, you're, you're working for the aggrandizement of the human ego, or you are working to achieve a goal that you're paid to achieve for training purposes. And that doesn't make it wrong or bad. That doesn't make someone a bad trainer if they're using a you know pressure-based system where the horse does not have an active role in the relationship. Because when you're working, when you're training a horse for another person versus training a horse for yourself, it's another experience. It is a completely different experience. So if we're talking about training, the question would be, are you training someone while you train their horse? Are you using a feel-based connection where no is okay? Are you operating in a way that learning to read the horse and using feel-based communication as a prerequisite is more important than just getting to yes because you can make him do it? These are things that really someone should consider before they get into it. I mean, if you're not aware of how you make decisions in your own life, then the horse involvement is just going to reflect whatever other trip you're on. And that would be, you know, working to astonish others or going at it because it's a goal and you get to the result at any cost. I mean, these are things that one could ask and where it really becomes apparent in the horse training circles that I have been around is that the training of a horse is of something that is happens when the horse is around anybody. How many horses, how many trainers does a horse have? It depends on who you ask. If you ask the person who's paid to show up two or three days a week or five days a week and get a trainer's salary, then they are the trainer. If you ask the horse, well, the relationship that they have with the groom, with the stall cleaner, with the person who feeds them, with the help that is hired to take them out from the stall to the pasture, with the person who handles the trucking to the shows and back. All of these people are trainers, every single one. So, you know, this is, this is where you want to start to figure out how, if you're boarding at a stable, how many people actually have access to your horse on a regular basis who feel entitled to influence that horse and get a response from that horse any way that they know how in order to satisfy the requirements of their own job. And I have a couple of people I've worked with in the last year or two who, when they finally sat down and thought about it, there are over 11 different people working with their horse every week. And that's not uncommon. You know, you have the vet, the farrier, the groom, the turnout person, the stall cleaner, the morning feeder, the evening feeder, the night check person, the actual trainer who's paid for the horse. And then you have the riding instructor who comes and adds on whatever their bit is. I mean, this is a lot for a horse that is kept in a stall to process. That is in addition to whether the shoes fit, the saddle fits, the teeth are in good shape. The diet is correct. The amount of free uh, time alone with other horses even happens at all. You know, in 2006, I put out an audio book called uh, 
what was it called? I think it was called Horse Handling and Riding Through Feel. It was a 10 CD audio book. And in one of the booklets that I wrote, I, I said, you know, I really could see a day when horses were really only understood as zoo animals. And I don't think we're far from that now. They're kept behind bars. They're visited by their owners. They're kept as pets. They're expected to behave like dogs, which are meat-eating animals. They are expected to perform many, many physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual roles in people's lives. And most of it is compensatory, um, sort of compensatory additions to whatever life the person is having without having the needs of that horse fully recognized or understood. Of course, it can't be understood until it's recognized and then honored. And if the needs of a horse were really going to be honored, most people wouldn't have horses. Horses aren't meant to be kept in a box, period, point. And when they are, and when they appear to be okay about it, it's only because the basic nature of a horse, which is a willingness to get along, is not understood as deeply as it should be. Because the compromise that goes on in that animal, when they go along with being isolated, confined, is um, something that most people don't really appreciate. And they end up addressing it by paying other professionals to deal with the side effects of that lifestyle, which is body care, you know, acupuncture, acupressure, remedial services that are the product of not being able to walk around every day with members of their own kind, you know, in, in species of uh, members of the species that they're in. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. And I, I also want to add that I think it's, it's a huge challenge that people haven't necessarily ever met a really sound horse. So they're not really able to tell the difference between a sound, healthy and happy horse and a horse that is said to be polite but they're really dull dull down or or shut down i think that's one of the the challenges for me when i when i visit different stables that people don't really see their horses and they don't really understand them well that's true and the good news is that until it gets to be extreme or too extreme um they aren't going to be burdened with that reality and by the time this becomes an extreme situation and professional remedial care is appropriate, what I find is that many of the people who have pursued careers in horse care and horse rehabilitation have only been channeled or encouraged to pursue a very narrow slice of the pie. And I find that Many of the body workers out there know zero about feet. Many of the hoof care people do not understand the effect of a, a, a cut, a slice, a rasp, an extra one degree angle change on the, the entire locomotion capacity of that animal. I mean, there are, I don't find enough people that really understand the hoof care to locomotion connection at all nor do most trainers understand the lead rope to rein connection. This is whether their clients are riding dressage, reining, working cow horse, cutting. Um, it could be anything from, you know, driving to um, just uh, the gated horse trail industry and all of the other um, pursuits that would include 
um, uh, endurance riding or casual recreational riding or the rescue operations that have actually morphed into serving the um, needs of the disadvantaged communities that are in all countries where people who are physically and emotionally challenged um, are using horses on a daily basis that would probably be much happier to be euthanized, quite frankly. And this type of, this type of thing um, is something that I, I must, I'm really trying to speak about this from the point of observation, not judgment, because the horse's job is to serve and the horses know that, and they will serve right up until the last step and the last breath. They, they serve without umbrage and without judgment. If they are given anywhere near half a chance, they will just keep on. Um, the sad part about that is that they will, as you know, and the, as I know, and as you have just said, they will stuff it. They will internalize, shut down, shut out, and... You know, I've seen some tremendous distress in people who realize that they've been enjoying a horse at his expense. And, you know, there are a tremendous number of very, very good people out there who don't know better and are horrified. I've seen this. I've seen this on this last trip. They're absolutely mortified to realize that they have been participating in their horse's discomfort and don't know it, haven't known it, haven't seen it, haven't understood it. You know, but as it's the nature of truth to surface, it's important when you are um, either blessed with a certain gift with horses or blessed with the opportunities that have led to, you know, perhaps, I don't know, more awareness or more skill than other people have had an opportunity to develop and enjoy. Um, you, you, you're not going to get you're not going to further your cause with judgment and condemnation. You have to, you know, when people are ready, they come forward and look for you. You know, I mean, you can't just stuff it down somebody's throat that they're riding a cripple. <laughs> I mean, you, you can certainly decide, let me just say this, if I had decided, and I used to not take on sound horses in my clinics, and I used to be very blunt about it. I also used to be very blunt about not taking people in my classes that were overweight or out of shape but I probably would have starved if I kept up that strict kind of a limit because overweight, out of shape, first-time horse owners deserve a chance to get in shape, lose weight, and become qualified horse owners. And that was, you know, there was a certain period of time where I realized that I just could not contribute in good conscience to the degradation of horses that had someone who was overweight out of shape and wanting to slam around on a joyride, balancing on the face, crashing an extra 150 pounds into the spine and, you know, whistle, grin and ride, baby, have fun. And I'm sorry, but I can't, I'm not going to supervise that. That's not what these horses are for. And I used to be quite strict about that. But what you have now is an older population of people who are working hard to stay fit and working hard to stay in shape and not be overweight and to be because they probably now, as I've observed, have the time to reflect, the time to do a better job, 
put more time in. They have the resources. Some do. Many don't. But some do have the resources to go the extra mile to get the extra care that their horses need after years of maybe not being as aware as they are now. And, you know, it's very easy to feel, it's easy to point a finger. It's easy to feel guilty. It's easy to, um, to live with regret, but I recommend nobody do it because the horses feel when you're not happy. The horses feel when you feel guilty. The horses feel when you feel upset at yourself. So I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to do anything except just look forward, keep trying, make your changes and go, you know, I mean, everyone has their own rate of learning, um, on the specifics of training, you know, many people who are involved with horses now also were involved with horses as children and loved it, really loved it, whether they were in a strict riding school or just, you know, flying around the pastures horseback with their friends. And then they, you know, perhaps got other interests anywhere from a career or uh, raising a family or going to college or putting education first or something like this. Um, but, you know, the momentum of a life takes you in a, in a direction, a, a trial and error, a trial and error, some successes along the way, hopefully many, many if possible. But in the end, the horses are a passion for people. So a lot of people have postponed this to the end and they find, OK, you've got your kids, you've got your career. Now you're retired. You you are retired and you are tired and maybe your body isn't as supple as it was and you still have the dream of owning a colt. And a lot of people will get a colt and try to start a colt. And so for those people, I would encourage them to do what their dreams tell them. But, you, but again, it's important to remember that horses are not dogs. And when you reward a horse for crowding you by hand feeding him. You give him a hand-fed carrot, a hand-fed apple. You stand close to him so you're always in his face and he's always on you, touching you, coming up to you, loving you, uh, so you think. These are not good habits to have because the same hand that feeds a horse, the, the person who rewards a horse for crowding by giving him a hand-fed treat, that's the same hand that will slap him or push him or jerk on the chain and tell him he's too close. So one has to think carefully about the message and about the obligation to be clear and consistent. If you want to train a horse and have one as a pet, then you need to decide whether you're going to set him up to fail so that you can correct him over and over and over again and be a horse trainer that corrects horses when you don't really know how to tell him what you want. And I will say that there are hundreds of millions of dollars a year that change hands uh, over correcting horses as a full-time occupation. Why, why, why on earth? I mean, are you correcting your college-aged children? Are you constantly correcting your dog? Are you correcting your husband? Are you correcting your wife? I mean, why are you correcting a horse? If you're going to train your horse, then teach him what you want him to do. If you don't know what you want him to do, then admit it and step out of the way and let someone show you how to train one. This is one of the problems of dealing with horses that want to get along with anybody is that they will tolerate that type of offensive behavior right until they can't.
And then that poor, well-intentioned, fantasy-driven, you know, dream-postponing, horse-loving, wonderful person is going to get a foot in the face or run down. Or they're going to pull too hard and get trampled and the horn is going to go through their chest and the horse will be lying on top of them. And don't think this doesn't happen because it does. And this is, this is why it is such a tricky thing to talk about. I mean, no one wants to be the town crier standing on the corner warning about how dangerous horses are. Nobody wants to do that. I don't want to do that. But the fact of the matter is, if you haven't got it straight when you get started, the difference between a predator and a flight animal, then you're going to stand in their eye, block their vision, 50% of their vision taken up with your head, your eye, your shoulder, your cowboy hat, or your chest, or what, wherever it is that you come to be with a horse at his side, in his head, and expect a flight animal to be comfortable giving up 50% of his vision to be crowded at the face by you every time you show up. And these are the horses that people say are pushy and disrespectful. And those comments come from people, I believe, who don't understand the animal at all. Clearly they don't, or they would stay out of the eye. <laughs> Ray Hunt used to say, if you want to understand how to be around a horse, get a cow for a year and don't cut the horns off. They'll teach you where to stand. Well, I mean, they'll stick a they'll stick a horn right between your ribs and back you off about six or ten feet so that you're standing at their hip. So, I mean, if you wanna you wanna have a horse flexible and available in the forehand and the front legs, you wanna let's say if you want your leading rein to have a shoulder and a willing a willing move behind it instead of have it, you know, feel like you're got your rain or your lead rope tied off to the back of somebody's truck or a tree stump, then you need to have your handling and management of that horse in your social time not be so dog-like that it takes all your strength and more to move him half a foot or to wake him up so he even wants to acknowledge that you're there. And it's this type of unawareness that makes people do things that they ultimately shouldn't do or regret doing or pay a price for doing to try to get the horse's attention because they feel, people feel as though they don't have their horse's attention, but actually that's all they have because if you're blocking his sight, he can't get rid of you. You're hanging, you're blo if you're standing in one eye and you're holding the lead rope six inches under his chin, oh, he knows you're there and he can't stand it. You wouldn't get away with that with a goat or a llama or a cow, or a sheep, or any other animal. is somehow the nature of the horse that is just so distinctly special and sacred and lovable. And they tolerate us for all our sins. And, um, you know, and in the end, the value of their life is in this odd balance between the price of semen and the price of meat when they're dead. It's uh it's a it's an interesting thing to be a horse, I suppose. More interesting than other things, which is why I've dedicated myself to every aspect of this journey that I can realistically, you know, understand and and improve when I can, you know. I mean I'm still learning all the time. I'm 
I have I surround myself with people who know more than I do about some of the things that that horses need us to know, like the structure of the feet, the way the fluids in the body go, the way the ganglia work, the way the lymphatics work, the way the the way the soft structures work, ligaments and tendons. I mean, it, there there are a few really good body workers, relatively few, and learning all I can from those people and kind of trying to match it up with the the knowledge that's available about hoof care. And but but to study or think about any of these things as an isolated pursuit. This is what I mean. Uh, you can go get an acupuncture person or a massage person and really if you doesn't matter whether it's free help or whether you're paying a premium price if you're putting a change in the body or remedial um, remedial effect onto the body to alleviate discomfort or to free up a limb or to try to you know encourage a more flexibility or forward motion or whatever it is that the assignment could be um, to do this without a clear understanding of the feet that you're putting this work on <laughs> you know it's like going to the chiropractor yourself for five or six sessions and wearing the same old crappy shoes that are the part are the problem in the first place so it's you know they're, they're, and on the on the plus side on the plus side well there's all these things to think about um, we're, we're, we have the internet and that's a 24 hour a day access situation. We have people that are willing to share tons of information that's helpful and useful. We have, you know, there are courses and seminars and people coming forward and online coaching that's available. So really anybody who wants to get better and wants to integrate their knowledge and, 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 enhance and expand their appreciation of these complexities and the way that they can be integrated to, you know, uh, I would say just a, an, to elevate your knowledge and, and, to, and to start to apply it in small ways every day. I mean, there's never been a time in history where more people knew less about horses, but similarly, there's never been a time in history where more knowledge that was useful is available to everybody for nothing yeah so i think that the challenge is to to find the right teachers yes that would be it that would be because it's it can be very difficult for a rider to differentiate between true horsemanship and what many would refer to as horsemanship and, and they struggle to find a telltale signs app to help people to choose the right path for themselves and their horse um because you know a lot of trainers would just promise you anything do a quick fix, maybe that's one of the things that you can actually use to differentiate between a good and, and a not-so-good trainer is that the not-so-good trainer will say that it's fixable in a second. And the good trainer will say, well, it's a, maybe it's fixable in the horse in a second, but it's going to take you a lot of work to turn yourself around. If you know what I mean. I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Well, you mentioned something there um, about the things that there are to observe. Um, in horses that are trained one way or another. And what I can say is that there are some things to notice in your own horse or in a horse you might want to buy or in a horse you're about to get on. I will say that there are certain horses that I do not get on. 
you know, for a client or a student or somebody. I mean, there are horses that I won't get on and, and, I'll, and I will be happy to share with you if it would be helpful. Uh, there are physical conditions that are ex- that are loud advertisements for a horse that is unfit to ride, unsuitable to ride. And what do I mean unsuitable to ride? Well, there are certainly, if you have a, if you're riding in an arena that is, you know, not too deep in the sand and not slippery and not muddy and not full of rocks or something, whether it's indoors or outdoors, I'm just saying, if you're not going to, if you're basically riding on a pool table, right, it's level and they're not going to be any other problems. It's not too crowded. There's no elevation. There's no holes. There's no roots. There's no rocks. If you have something like that, well, you can you can actually sort of get away with the increased risk that might show up suddenly if you were going to have the same ride on the same horse out in a field or in a, on a hill or in the woods. But let's just say if a horse is landing toe first, I do not ride those horses. And, there, and many horses do land toe first. People don't understand the damage they do uh, to, to, to the horse to ride that way and to keep the horse that way with his hoof care or with his, as I say, it's not just hoof care, it's many things. A horse can be landing toe first for a number of reasons, but that is not the way they're designed to travel. And they shouldn't be, I don't ride horses that can't lift their feet out of the ground. Um, you know, if a horse is backing up and he's dragging four lines of dirt with him, uh, I don't ride that horse. Why would I? Why would you get on a horse and ask him to carry you if he cannot, in his own body, lift the feet off the ground? Why would you do it? And people do. They don't understand the damage they do. They don't understand the risk they're in. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to try to explain it carefully in a way that won't be alarmist, but that will be, that will be true. Okay, I'll see if I can do it. By the time a horse is unable to pick his feet up in a backwards, in a backward motion, okay? If you're asking him to back up and you see that the horse is actually, um, his feet don't leave the ground, okay? So he's dragging dirt with his feet. Do you follow me? So then if that's the foundation for the backup and that is the foundation for your, that's, that's an aspect of your stop. It's an aspect of his motion, his locomotion, his ability to travel. Let's say that you had a job opening at your company and 10 people showed up and nine out of the 10 couldn't lift their feet off the ground when they walked in the door. Who would you be likely to hire to be your ambassador to the public and your main helper throughout the day? Would you hire somebody who couldn't lift their feet off the ground or would you take the one who could? That sounds like a very easy question to answer. Right, right. And people get on those other kind all day long and they want to be judged on their performance in their reining, in their cutting, in their gymkhana work, their barrel racing, their dressage, their hunter jumper, without any regard for the fact that the horse's ligaments, tendons, structure, muscle development, Mental, mental response in themselves to the inability to move is absolutely predicated on the fact that they can't even 
lift their legs out of the ground. I mean, this 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 should this should bring some question to the mind of a thinking person. My horse does not lift his back feet or front feet off the ground when I ask him to take a step back. I wonder why I think I am safe getting on and to walk, trot, change leads, go on trails, get in and out of a trailer when he is not able to use the heels of his feet and when he is not able to lift his feet out of the dirt at the standstill of the walk. The fact that that does not raise questions and get people seeking solutions is something that I am, I have to say now, no longer appalled by. I am no longer upset by because it is so common that all I can say is it is so common that uh, I have just had to accept it. I guess you could say that I've gotten dull to the fact that this is the way it is. But since we're having this discussion and since we're hopefully sharing this discussion with other people who can make their own conclusions and ask their own questions and start to reflect on their own way of being around horses and their own way of looking at their own capacities to help horses and to help themselves have a safer animal and a safer experience and a happier horse, safer ride for themselves, better better standards, then, you know, I, I, I can't very well sit on the information forever in good conscience either. But to look at the way that young horses are handled, it was only made known to me just recently that most of the horses going to the racetracks today are started in stalls. I had no idea of this. I was still under the impression that, you know, the bluegrass of Kentucky is where most of the two-year-olds are raised in herds. That's not necessarily the case anymore. I had no idea of this, that horses, that thoroughbreds are getting raised in stalls. It's unconscionable to me that you're going to raise a flight animal that would ordinarily on the first or second day have already covered two or three miles and learned lead changes and sliding stops and been able to spin around in his own tracks and go 180 or 270 degrees and then take off at a gallop after 24 hours of life. And these horses, you know, are being restrained with stud chains and led around as six and seven and eight month old horses that are taken out of a box once a day, if that. This to me, this was something I just became aware of recently. I'm sorry to say, but I can't say it was. Uh, it I wasn't overjoyed, but whether I was overjoyed or not is irrelevant. If this is something that is going on and I'm in the position I'm in, then then I need to figure out what I can do to help people overcome the illusion that this is okay. You know, these are observable facts. I'm not trying to infuse too much opinion in this because the opinion in any thinking person would be, I think, logical. The conclusion is that we need a better way for interested people to have a safer experience and to be fit enough and well-prepared enough so that we can actually revive the horse industry in a way that people can be proud to be part of it instead of playing catch up and suffering with some sort of remorse or shame or guilt of not doing right by the horse. Now, how do you do that with limited resources? I don't know, but I'm not stopping. You know, the first thing we have to do is to understand the difference between a predator and a flight animal and to understand that it is our choice of what to do when we're around them. It is our choice on whether we are going to turn them into hand-fed pets that are punished for being too close, 
or whether we're going to honor the privilege of being around them and learning what we can about them and about ourselves from the experience of sharing time with them. And to me, uh, you know, the, the, the people that I am in touch with now and, and have the privilege of working with and learning from are really enjoying the expanded experience of getting along with a horse on their own terms. And, you know, I can only say that I think this is part of where horse training could profitably be directed, which is what can we learn about a horse, about ourselves and about our own capacities by training a horse in a way that does not bring out resistance. I think you've made quite an effort in this particular field over the years that you worked, Leslie. Um, you work closely with Bill Dorrance. You wrote a book together with him, True Horsemanship Through Feel. And I think you've you've made a tremendous difference when the clinics, you know, with the clinics that you've had where where I've attended, where you have, uh, for example, had aggressive horses, so-called aggressive horses, and um, and you have used uh, uh, a herd of horses to help the horse find his way back, like getting back the horse in the horse. And I've seen so many examples in your clinics where, where you you have really moved mountains with horses like that just by allowing them to, you know, find their way back to be horses after being broken by humans. And I think it's been such a gift to to watch your horse work and see how, like, you're very specific about how they move their feet. I remember the first clinic I was, uh, that I attended with you, and you talked about when the horse would move, you had, like, maybe a horse or, or four or five horses in the arena, and you would have, like, these control questions you would ask the audience, and you would say, which foot did he move first and the first like 20 or 30 or 50 times you asked that question I had no answer because I had never looked at the feet of the horse before I just looked at the head you do now though I do now but but it really it was really such a um a brilliant start on my journey with horses to meet somebody like you who oh, could teach me you. you know yeah but to, to teach me to actually read the horse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because before I went to those clinics i I had no idea what to look for mm-hmm. and it for sure you know for sure after after our last quin- clinic in two thousand and seven you know I've just been kind of continuing to to learn to see and understand more and more about horses and still you know I just feel like it's it's like still the starting point of really understanding them because they are so they're just so amazing animals. There's there's so much more than people understand. They are so much more, and they know so much. And this is one of the things I will tell you a quick story. I'll make it a quick one. Well, I must have been back in 2000, maybe three or four in Finland. It was somewhere outside Helsingfors. And I did a demo in a very, very small pen that was set up. I mean, it was unreasonably small. It was probably 20 by 30 feet and uh, and it was just a string on a couple of stakes that was put up nothing electric nothing solid and I was supposed to do a little demo in there anyway I did my best and I had a lot of people around there it was a very well attended place anyhow I mean it was just a, a big county fair with everything you can have there I mean horse people from all over the place and different little contests and shoeing contests and pulling contests and all sorts of anything you want about a horse or a horse wagon or a pony or something like this was around there. And there were quite a few people around my little part too. But there was one man who 
asked me, he stayed at the end and he said, I notice you don't hit your horse. He was from Estonia. And I say, no, I don't do it. He said, yes, but I do every day have to hit mine. He said, I have race horses and I hit them a lot. And I said, well, why do you do it? Do you, does it work? Do you hit them and they go faster? He said, no, I hit them to control them. And I said, I was trying to understand, but I could see that he was really visibly moved and didn't have a whole lot of English and I didn't have any of his language available. So we did our best. But he said, I, I hit them. And I said, well, when do you stop? He said, well, sometimes it's different, but they never scream. I don't think they have feelings because he said they never scream. And when I heard that and I looked at him and I said, he said, but you're never hitting them once and they do everything that you're asking. An hour later, he was still crying in the front of his truck and he missed the ferry. So you never know who you help. I wish today that I had taken his name and his number or his email or something. And I wish I had sent him a book or something, you know, because that was so moving to me. And because he, he had come a long way to see my little demo there and to see the whole fair, I assume too. But when he realized that horses had feelings and that they could be asked to put their foot someplace, I mean, really in the end, let's face it, here's what a horse needs you to know. Where do you want his feet? in what sequence, at what speed, and when. I mean, it's very basic. If you're the horse and you have on a dressage saddle or you're, you know, in Rome 2,000 years ago, you're, you've got a chariot and, or you're even in Xenophon's age, okay, you're a few hundred years BC or whenever, where do you want the feet? At what speed, in what sequence, and when? Brilliant. I mean, I mean, that is the basics, Leva. That is the basics. You want him forward or you want him back? Do you want the front end left or do you want the front end to the right? You want the hips right or left? Do you want him standing? Do you want him running? And then you ask about the posture, you know? So this is the key. You want to know about horse training? Posture, speed, and direction needs to be taught separately. You cannot just get up there and pull and have Pull him off grass with your lead rope and then be surprised when pull do doesn't mean stop when you're sitting on him. If the lead rope means move the feet, the reins will also mean move the feet, right? You pull on the head to move the feet or do you pull on the head to change his posture? This is what has to be understood. And you have a number of things that make it possible for a horse to understand you. You have the use of your arms. Your hands are connected on the end of those. You have the use of your legs. Your feet are on the end of those. You have your balance on the ground and under saddle when you're on him. Your legs are apart and around his body and you have your balance there. But think about it. Your, your balance is going to be predicated on, determined by your ability to align on his back. Are you looking where you're going or are you looking at your hands? Are you really actually scared to be up there because you don't want him to go too fast so you're looking at the ground? If so, then he is going to be going on the forehand. He will be riding on his toes eventually and you'll be pushing the saddle up into his withers and you'll be looking down and you'll be blocking him with your line of sight when you ask him to turn. And you will have the ride that that kind of behavior produces. So there's a lot to think about for people who want to get good at what they do. And most people just want to get good right away. So they skip the basics and go to the test and try to get in the show ring and be, you know, arrange the, arrange the evidence that they're better than they are by getting a prize of some kind, you know. 
which is offered by who? A judge who what? A judge who rides a bar stool? A, a judge who sits on the couch? A judge who used to ride horses back when and is now your judge? I mean, are you riding for the astonishment of others or you're building a partnership with your animal? These are things that could be thought about profitably at some point by people if they really want to understand how to get along with horses. But, you know, these are time-consuming decisions that people can make. I have to say that thinking about the legacy of Bill Dorrance and how you also, you know, carry that legacy and, and making, you know, your own legacy based on your own horsework. Do you have, you know, people who can kind of, what you call it when you, you're in a race and, and you give a stick to the next guy and he takes it and he runs further? Uh, it seems like I do, yes. It seems like there's no shortage of people who are interested in this work and paying attention No, I'm, I'm really glad to hear because I think it's so, I think it is so important to have uh, voices like yours in the horse community. When you say, you know, the horse should be allowed to say no, it's just, it's, it's not just a phrase. It, it has meaning. You really mean he is allowed to say no because a lot of trainers would just say, for sure, the horse will be allowed to say no, but just for a short minute or a second, and then he will have to say yes again. No, the way that I mean that is that if the horse is saying no, it means that my presentation isn't fitting. And there are times when I can still do the same thing. I just need to wait for the horse to look around or I need to wait for the horse to breathe out or I have to realize that that last trimmer or sure that the owner just got did such a bad job that I need to come back in six weeks after there's been some growth on the feet because the no has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the fact that his feet are at the wrong angle that he's got a hot nail or that somebody just pulled the shoes off in a transition to barefoot and knew nothing about preparing a foot to go without a shoe and just prepared it to have a shoe, didn't put a shoe back on. These are not the same things, you know. You have That's why I say you have to be able to read a horse. No doesn't mean go to hell. No can mean ouch. No can mean I'm worried. No can mean I need a minute or two. No can mean I have a wolf tooth and that bit is sitting right on it. No can mean I just got sold three times in the last two months and I don't know my I don't even know where I am. You know, you have to you have to well, this is just takes time. People have to understand where the no is coming from. And part of how you learn to accept no is you embrace the idea that if you were the horse or you are yourself and no is never allowed, what's life gonna feel like? You're going to be kind of suppressed and kind of docile and kind of dull and kind of going along with no identity and no say in the matter and kind of blending into the wallpaper and kind of living a non-life. And one of the things that is really important about the question you asked me about, do I have people around me who are understanding this and taking it forward? Absolutely, I do. I do. Um, and I'm love working with these people and many of them are have writing schools now and are still reading and studying Bill's book and also working with the audiobook which was a sequel to Bill's book I had meant to have it be a printed book but I was in Germany in 2000 um, beginning I think about middle of 2000 end of 2005 at the beginning of 2006 I think I had an accident there and so I ended up making my book into an audio book with the help of um, Ingo Betzel and his daughter Rika. And they did an amazing job 
amazing, amazing job, along with uh, Diana Sumerall and Tim Trabon, who is unfortunately now deceased, but that team, and uh, there were a couple of other people involved with that who just put the sound, uh, they put the sound and the concept and the technology together and helped me get the audio book out, I'm working on another book now, uh, which I hope to have out before long. It's a... Uh, it's taken a different turn, but it, it's it's about the feel of a horse. And uh, the website by the same name, Feel of a Horse, is also where people can find now uh, free videos on the landing page, which is if you put in feelofahorse.com, you can find some free videos on there every month. And it's sort of a revolving door, and people have come and gone a few times already in a few years. And I welcome that because... You know, I can't always, like on this, for example, I mean, we have 70 terabytes of data, more now, 74 terabytes of data, I think. And it's just a matter of this is all still a volunteer effort. I have a team. There are 20 people on the team at Feel of a Horse who are helping in small but very important ways. Everybody has a little job. And we just, we go forward the best we can. I cannot say enough about how grateful I am that, so many really um, compassionate and thinking people who love horses, who share the passion I have, are willing to contribute their time and their intelligence, their skills to help me uh, get this message forward. Bill's legacy is a very important thing. Um, the feel of a horse is something that if you don't um, entertain uh, the consideration of this, you will probably at some point wish that you had because feel is the horse's language. It's been just so wonderful to talk to you again, Leslie. Thanks, Liv. And see where you're at and um, and also knowing that this legacy will, you know, will be part of the future as well. I think it's, uh, I think it's so important to, to have somebody who constantly remind people that, that horses are cooperative uh, animals and that's really how they are designed so yes. if your horse doesn't co cooperate with you then then you should ask uh, you should really ask yourself the question why because they have always a good reason for it that's my I, experience yeah it's mine as well yeah I, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today it's just great I I hope the next time we can do this in person would be wonderful to see you again yeah that would be wonderful i agree could i could i just quickly ask you the question that i ask all my guests at uh, this show leslie and sure. that is is there one specific thing that you have learned on your personal journey with horses that you think it is important that everybody dealing with horses should know uh yes i think there is and that is that if you um you ask a horse to forgive you for a transgression, past, present, recent, or long ago. I think even even the horses that are out of your life, I think if you ask the horse to forgive you for misunderstandings, mistreatment, lack of knowledge, lack of caring, lack of concern, lack of awareness, I think it's very, very important to know that a horse that you ask of this will actually do. You can feel it. I think it's important for people to understand that the horses really have no room. They don't have room in their working operations for 
self-hatred, self-disparagement, low self-esteem, hatred of others. Horses don't really thrive on that energy, I've noticed. And when you are humble before your horse, I think that the liberation that comes when you can share the truth, the facts of your, um, the facts of yourself. I didn't know enough. I tried my best. It wasn't good enough. I hurt you. I didn't mean to. I was cruel to you. I didn't mean to be that way. I loved my teacher. I admired the results my teacher got, but I didn't understand that getting those results that way had hurt you so much. Those sentiments need to be expressed and those burdens need to be released. And I think that the, um, what I've learned in my own journey, having really hurt some horses that I loved very much, it, you know, uh, I had the opportunity to learn from some people that I admired and loved, and I did some things I regretted very much. And um, I don't regret anymore because I know that, that ex the exchanges I had with those animals was uh, so deep and so meaningful. And even postpartum, even and some of them uh, were long gone, I at least had to release myself, and I did, and... I could, you can do that in front of a picture, you can do that in a prayer, you can do that in a meditation, but to be free, to be free of that uh, aspect of your journey that you regret or don't want to repeat again, that, free, that freeing yourself of that is an extraordinarily important thing to becoming uh, better, to having more to offer a horse, and more to offer the people that are associated with them. I'd say that's probably the best and most important significant thing that I feel very sure about recommending that people uh, consider if they would like to advance their skills. Thank you ever so much for this talk, Leslie. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Leah. This interview with Leslie Desmond could have ended here. But what happened was that I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning the day after and realized that I had one last but very important question. It had to do with the approach where the goal is to make the right thing easy for the horse. Because when we do, we for sure also make it slightly difficult for the rider. Because this way of training requires good timing and feel combined with in-depth knowledge and understanding of the horse. So I sent her an email and called her back to ask her one last question. If I'm about to make the transition where my focus is to make the right thing easy for the horse. What is your best advice to help me get there? Well, that's a little bit different than I understood the original question, which was... Okay. No, 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 <laughs> it's quite okay. Let's, let's take it just as you first asked me, and then I can answer both, because they are different questions, and they have okay. different answers, I believe. The first question that we talked about was that you had overlooked the opportunity to ask me about the ages old time-honored way of at least in the last 30 years of popular practice of making the wrong thing difficult and the right thing easy um, as opposed to since making the right thing easy would be harder for us then how do you go about it those are two slightly different questions let's just say that for one who is not thinking about either one of those platitudes or has no idea that such a concept was ever put forward or such a choice was possible, what I could say is it's easy enough to observe, to read about, to witness. You can look at it in videos. You can look at it in the back pasture. 
horses have curiosity and they also have a willingness to get along with each other when possible. Usually in, in, the implication would be if they have enough room and they are fed often enough, they have the absolute ability to get along easily. Um, and they certainly have a desire and an interest in getting along with people or their curiosity wouldn't bring them continually to the fence or to the gate or their ears up when we speak, this type of thing. I mean, it's easy to observe that a horse isn't a friendly and agreeable animal. So one would wonder uh, about a commitment to make the wrong thing difficult and the right thing easy when in fact you have the possibility, if you know how to make the right thing easy, you have the possibility to educate the horse instead of having him go 10 times around the back of the building to find out all the things that you don't want. My clear belief is that if people know what they want, it's a lot easier to educate the horse and leave the correction to the people who are out there with their trainer hat on and don't really understand what to do um, if they're not correcting. And I think really one of the sad developments that has happened in our industry, and this is cross-discipline, right from the backyard to the trail rides, to the dude ranches, to the highest levels of international competition and in between, is that when you have it in your head to make the wrong thing difficult, you are constantly renewing your license to make trouble for the horse. And if or when you are consciously investing in making things more difficult for the horse until he finds what it is that you want, what on earth is the goal of holding out on him if you actually know what you want and know how to present it? What I've witnessed in the last 30 years of seriously applying myself toward the betterment of my own skills on a on an almost daily basis. I mean, I'm 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 never not thinking about maybe in the moment I might not be, uh, you know, making change at the grocery store, but the horses are on my mind continually, and what I can do to soften my approach and improve my approach to them and to the people who love, care for, own, train and look after them in various capacities. If I can't reach the people who are caring for them in a nice way uh, and help them, if I make the wrong thing difficult for the people, it's gonna make the wrong thing difficult for the horse. So if I make the right thing easy for the people, then that's already gonna be easier for the horse to understand because I'm gonna show them how to deliver enough timing and enough feel, enough preparation and enough generosity of spirit to allow the horse to learn something about what you do want. That is a choice we can make. There's an infinite number of things, infinite number of things that we don't want. In, in life with a horse, with a dog, with a spouse, with a child, with a boss, with a project, there's an infinite number of things that we don't want. Why focus there? Why would we focus there and invest negativity in that? Why would we put our aggression and our resistance into the horse? Uh, because he has not understood before he even had a chance to be shown what the right thing was. This is, a, this is a kind of thinking that is actually a little bit out of date now, I would just say. The people who are investing in that type of approach may, may also have it running through the rest of their lives. And I will say it doesn't necessarily bring a smile to the lips. This is very true. The thing is that being with horses and being authentic with horses is not really just what happens in the barn and on the trail ride or, or in the arena. It's, it is... Uh, it's a question of how you choose to live your life, basically. 
Yes, and to people who are not thinking that that is a relevant or a relevant reference or perhaps too broad for inclusion in a discussion about horses, it's easy enough to say that what you clearly have in front of you with a horse is a curious thinking, decision-making, feeling being. He can look out for your interests or not. And I don't know of a time that it comes home uh, and smacks more clearly in the mind of someone who is vulnerable. For example, if you're hanging by the stirrup at a trot or a gallop, uh, you would hope to have a horse that could extend his capacities to stop as he was trained to stop when someone's falling off. And if he wasn't trained to stop when someone's falling off, then that would be something to focus on. How do you teach a horse to stop when you fall off? That's one of the first things that I teach. And it's one of the first things that is most important for a horse to know is how to look out for his rider or her rider and how to, how to try and avoid and look out for people who are in the way. This can be taught and this can be shown by not crowding them. It can be shown by setting them up to succeed and not to fail because those who correct and are constantly on the lookout for what the horse is doing wrong. I'm sad to say it's, it's, it's just an impossible conclusion. Um, not to reach that if you're busy correcting the horse for everything you don't want it would really call into question whether you know how to present what you do want and as far as making it easy for the horse versus hard i would leave that discussion out of it altogether because the horse is going to show you what he needs and whether it makes it more difficult for someone to present something in a nice way would only beg the question why is that person so out of sorts or sour or foul-minded that it would be such an effort to be nice to a horse? You know, why, why would it be so difficult to either get along with a horse that is already curious about what you might be interested in having him do for you? I mean, Bill said it very well in his comments on the topic when he said, you know, where I came from, we kind of liked our horses. <laughs> and he, he said that on more than one occasion um, at various events and in front of different TV shows that we happened to watch together at different times during the time I was with him. And um, he would sometimes just turn around and say over his shoulder, <laughs> when I was coming up, we sort of liked our horses. <laughs> we rather liked them and wanted to get along with them. And that really, I don't, I, I would have to say that I think the underpinning of the relationship and the connection to the horse is very clear when people are not invested there. The people who don't have a connection to the horse can't fake it because if you do, the horse will reflect it immediately. And I think that one of the painful things about learning to constantly correct a horse and have that be your, your basic way of, way of doing things is that it unfortunately brings up kind of an emptiness in the connection. Uh, too much dissatisfaction is exhibited toward a horse as a matter of routine, a matter of course, as a way of being, that to register that dissatisfaction, to continually offer corrections, quick paced denials of the try, the horse will lose that try. And what results is a tangible palpable, visible emptiness between the 
handler and the horse or the trainer and the horse. And it is easy to see uh, when horses are tuned out in the presence of their owner or trainer, when the horse looks as though he's just there in body only and has a, a vacant, empty or troubled look. Often you can see it in the eye. Often when the eyes are closed, you can see it etched into the creases of the skin where that trouble lives in the mind. And um, all I can say is that resistance creates resistance. And I think the hardest thing to do for people who are committed to making this transition or at least even interested in it is to understand that it's okay to feel vulnerable in front of a horse. It's okay to have in your bearing and in your presentation an energetic equivalent of I'm not sure. A lack of sureness is okay. It doesn't provoke an attack from 99% of the horses that are in circulation today. Your vulnerability or your lack of knowledge is not going to provoke aggression in a horse. So I think that, you know, people can start to experiment um, if they want, if they are interested in how to switch uh, gears a little bit and to try to bring out the best in the horse, which will bring out the best in themselves, is to feel okay about their unsureness. Maybe it's okay to feel sure that you're unsure and share that with the horse verbally or energetically or in your way of handling him and let him show you. Horses will show you many times. They will show you. How many horses will show you where something itches? How many horses will show you when they're hungry, when they want to go out, when they need to lie down, when they're missing a friend, when they're afraid of something? They show you all the time things. And as you refine your capacity to appreciate the nuances of their way of communicating, they will show you deeper and deeper things about the inside of themselves, including their histories, including their body phenomenon, inner workings, outer workings, hoof pain, shoulder pain, gut disturbances. They'll show you a lot of things. They'll show you when their heads hurt. You just need to learn how to read it. And this might sound like a crock, but I don't believe that it is. It's a demonstrable thing. And one of the things that happens when people open that door on the possibilities, possibilities about the depth of connection with a horse, is that they're not disappointed. You just crack that door open and I think surprising things can happen in the best possible way. It's nice to have a journal. It's nice to have a tape recorder. It's nice to record these things as they happen. If you have doubts about what you experienced, you can listen to it or watch your notes later. But um, without a shadow of a doubt, there has never been a time in history where more people needed help understanding horses. And I think the biggest help that you could possibly give yourself is to make sure you have the time. Is there anything else that comes up in your mind? Um, no, I think we're good. Um, thank you ever so much, Leslie, for this appendix. And... Uh, and thank you ever so much for, uh, for joining me as a guest on my show and uh, take good care of you. Great. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Bye, Liv. You have just heard episode 11 from Clan of Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. I want to thank my guest, Leslie Desmond. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.